If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Galatians. We're all the way up to Galatians chapter what? One. But hey, we're making progress. I was encouraged by the number of people that emailed me this week and said, don't forget you didn't finish verse 6. Oh, I haven't forgotten. So we are in the middle of verse 6. Let me get there. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, which reads, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Messiah to a different gospel. And we were talking last time, when time ran out, about what the gospel is. And now many, many people believe that the gospel is that Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. That is good news. But that's not the entirety of the gospel. How do we know? Well, one thing is they were teaching the gospel of the kingdom before he was even immersed, right? In fact, they were teaching a gospel message all the way back at Mount Sinai. So it could not have been, hey, Yeshua was crucified, buried, and resurrected. There's got to be more to it. And while that's an important part, there is more to it. So let's keep going with that. And that's especially why I got so many emails going, you didn't, you never got to the point. What was the point you were driving at? Point is, we got to finish the scriptures first. So let's go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 10. And I think it's because of a misunderstanding of exactly what the gospel is that so many churches today teach what is not the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. We'll start in verse 8 so I don't start in the middle of a sentence because people might think that's just wrong. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Messiah Yeshua before time began and has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel points us to immortality. It points us away from darkness into light. In the same book, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. This also shows that the gospel was before time began. You're absolutely correct. There was no plan B. Those who teach that God had a plan A and it utterly failed and he had to go and, and come up with this plan B at the last minute, that's simply wrong. Messiah is what? The lamb slain from thee? foundation of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. Remember that Yeshua the Messiah of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. 
So yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah is part of the gospel. It's a very important part of the gospel. It's just not the entire gospel. I know I'm still teasing you along. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. This is going to reinforce Daniel's point from a moment ago. You knew it was coming, didn't you? Yeah. 2 Timothy 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the, what? The everlasting gospel. It always was, it is, it always will be. The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. Notice that's part of the everlasting gospel that the angel is preaching. Was heaven an afterthought? No. Let's go back to Hebrews because here's where I want to bring the scriptures to an end and the discussion to the forefront. Fear God means to obey his commandments. Yes, it does. And that's part of the gospel. Yep. I think you've been peeking over my shoulder. God doesn't Yep. yep, since God does not change, the gospel must be the same as it was from the beginning. That's why we looked at Revelation as the everlasting gospel. It has not changed. It's not going to change. We can want it to change. That's not going to make it change. I don't want it to change either. What would it be like to serve a God who changed his mind every time he turned around? It would be terrible. That's the way a lot of the pagans uh, were portrayed. Yeah. So let's go back to Hebrews. Chapter 3. What? Chapter 3? What? You want to go to chapter 4? Oh, Hebrews. Okay. Duh. Excuse me. Okay. You're going back to Galatians chapter 3 and wondering why I skipped chapter 2 entirely. Yeah, Yeah, trust me, we won't skip chapter 2. What we need to come to in Hebrews is in chapter 4, but we must start in chapter 3 with verse 18. And to whom did he, meaning the Lord our God, swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who did not obey. So you see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They couldn't enter into what? That promised Sabbath rest, that Sabbatismos of chapter 4. Let's keep reading in chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to them Yes, and I'll finish the verse, but I, I want to stop here 
to put emphasis on the fact that the gospel was preached to them. And what is the topic here of Hebrews? It's about entering that final Sabbath rest of God, that millennial kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. So it says in verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So going back to Daniel's point, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 tells us that it's the same gospel that was preached to us that was preached to them in the wilderness. But it did not profit them not be mixed with faith in those who heard it. Verse 3, for we who have believed do, or I believe it's better translated will, enter that rest. That rest is an essential part of the gospel that was preached to them in the wilderness as well as to us. So let me break it down the best I can. Here's the best I can put together the concept of the entirety of the gospel. Number one, that there is a kingdom of God that is coming. It begins with the messianic kingdom. It goes into eternity future. It's described in the book of Hebrews as the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest that remains. That was promised to them in the wilderness if they had simply had faith enough to enter it. So the first is the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's real. So the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably as is that coming Sabbath rest. Part number two. We enter that kingdom, that Sabbath rest, by faith. Salvation's by faith. That's the way it's always been. It's never been any different. It's what was preached to Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 15. The book of Hebrews says those at Mount Sinai that received the gospel message did not get to enter into that promised rest, that promised kingdom to come because of their what? Their unbelief, which demonstrated a lack of faith. So number one, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Number two, we enter that kingdom by faith. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Part three, or point three, whatever you want to call it. Sin prevents entry into the messianic kingdom. That kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth. Because disobedience is equated with a lack of faith. And sin, the breaking of God's commandments, is disobedience. And we only disobey because of a lack of faith, according to Hebrews. So I always teach to them in the wilderness that there's a Sabbath rest to come, a glorious kingdom on earth. But you can only enter it by faith. You can't buy your way in. You can't work your way in. You can't deserve it. It's a free gift of God by God's grace and mercy. But sin, unrepentant, unturned from sin, will keep us out of it. Give me a verse. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 6 gives a list of sins that says, if you're doing any of these, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Galatians has a list like that. Revelation has a list like that. The point is what? If you're living in unrepentant sin, don't expect to enter into that kingdom. Go to Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, you are that one servants whom you obey, whether it's sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Who's Paul talking to here? To believers or unbelievers? To believers. So he says, if you are living a life of unrepentant sin, are you on the narrow road or the broad road? Broad road. And that's from Matthew chapter 7 where Messiah himself says, let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Messiah says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, in that day, what day? The day of the Lord, that's judgment day. That's the time of that Sabbath rest that had been promised. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Why did they practice lawlessness? Because they lacked what? They lacked faith. Turn to the book of Luke. Turn to the book of Luke. Chapter 6, verse 46. This is our Messiah speaking. Just look at his face. Close your eyes and look at his face. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Back to the points of the gospel. Number four. Repent. And walk uprightly. Not to try and earn entry into the kingdom of heaven. But because if you have been saved by faith. You cannot help but love the Lord. And what did the Lord say? If you love me. Keep my commandments. So this is part of the gospel. Sin prevents entry into the kingdom, but we have the opportunity to repent and to turn back to God. But then we have a problem. What about all those sins we've already committed? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So how did God provide blood to atone for us and to take away our sins to remit them? That's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah.
without the blood of Messiah to atone for and to remit our sins that we've committed in the past, where would we be? We'd be lost. We'd be excluded from the kingdom. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if Messiah hasn't risen from the dead, then you're still in your sins. And the sixth point. The fifth point was, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The sixth point is, but Messiah did shed his blood for us when he died on Calvary's tree, was buried and resurrected and he is the way into the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is coming. We enter it by faith. But sin prevents our entry. So we must repent and turn back to God. And we must accept the shed blood of our Messiah Yeshua to wash away the sins of the past. Because we can't change those. All we can do is accept Messiah's death in our place. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What was the verse used for the resurrection of I'm sorry? What was the verse you used for the re resurrection of Messiah? I don't know. Which verse did I use? First Corinthians. Oh, First Corinthians 15. I'm sorry. Let's turn there. That's the problem. I didn't turn there. I just mentioned it. First Corinthians 15. which is all about our resurrection, relies upon his resurrection. Starting in verse 16. Well, we'll start in verse 12 for context. Problem is that some amongst those calling themselves believers taught that there is no resurrection. So in verse 12 it says, Now if Messiah is preached and he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Messiah, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Messiah have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Messiah, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Messiah the firstfruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. You can agree with my points on the gospel or not but that's what I see and that's what ties it all together back in the wilderness at Mount Sinai if they were taught the same gospel we were taught 
and the gospel is described in the book of Hebrews as being how do we enter into that rest of God which describes the messianic kingdom which is coming how do we enter it we enter it by faith what about the sins we committed in the past Messiah's blood takes those away then do we continue walking in sin that grace may abound Romans 6 1 God forbid now let's go back to Galatians 1 to verse 7 which says which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Messiah and because we promised that in these most recent Bible studies we were trying to do modern applications and point out examples and things are there gospel messages being presented today that are different from what I just described? Yeah. They say 85% of those who call themselves Christians in the world are amillennial preterists. Amillennial meaning they don't believe there's any millennial kingdom coming. That there will be no reign of Messiah on earth. There will be no Sabbath rest to come. And isn't the gospel about how we enter into that kingdom, that rest? So what if they're teaching that there is no coming kingdom? What do you put your faith in? Exactly. And preterism ties right into it. Preterism says that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. That the kingdom that's coming isn't a literal kingdom. That it came in 70 AD through the Catholic Church. That the Catholic Church has been the reign of God on earth. And that Yeshua isn't actually returning. He's reigning through the Pope. So the Pope is the vicar of Christ, is one of his titles. means he's in the place of Messiah leading that kingdom. And I'm sure you've noticed that in the world today, there is such peace and harmony. There's no war. There's no bloodshed. Yeah, you guys look at me like I'm crazy. So is that the same gospel? I say it's not. Take part two. Let's look at Andy Stanley and all those that are following him because much of, much of the Protestant church of today is following Andy Stanley who would say the gospel message is that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. Hallelujah, we can live in sin. And now God will be pleased. Is that what the scripture teaches? Let's turn back to Romans chapter 6 one more time in case I read it wrong. When your teacher is telling you to unhitch from the Old Testament, it's time to walk away. What did every one of the apostles teach from? They taught from the scriptures. They taught from the Old Testament. What did Messiah use when he rebuked Satan? He looked at Deuteronomy. That's what Paul told Timothy. It was good for correction, doctrine, correction, and proof, and all those good things. Instruction and righteousness. It's also able to make you 
also able to make you wise in the salvation. Messiah said, if you're walking in lawlessness, I don't know you. How can you unhitch from it? Oh, didn't the scripture say that it's there for us to learn from? So you can't unhitch from the thing that's teaching you how to live righteously. Right. And doesn't the scripture say that with that there is no imputation of sin? Sin is not imputed when there is no law. So if the law has been done away with, that's not the same gospel that Paul preached. Look what he said in Romans 6. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer, majinoito, certainly not. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Does that sound like it's okay to sin and God's happy with it now? It does not. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. Without holiness, no one will see God. And that word holiness is the same word that gets used as saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Where was I going? First John 3.10, thank you. Not that I'm getting excited or anything. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, meaning how can you tell one from the other? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Is practicing righteousness the same thing as claiming to have faith? No, it's not. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That sounds like the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? Turn to the book of Hebrews. First, I got to find Hebrews. I think I lost it. I didn't lose it. I found it. Oh. Hebrews what? 1214. 1214. Right there it is. Right where it has always been. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. But didn't Paul say that once we get saved, we should live like the Gentiles live? Oh, he said don't. That's an important word. That, that must be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, which means it has to be true, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Rain, could you slow down, please? Oh, sure. I'm so sorry. I, I will slow down. Yeah. But, you know, that paragraph beginning in verse 17 goes on. And it tells us in verse 24 what God is looking for from his children. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. 
All right, so let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. Because in Galatia, they were not teaching that the commandments have been abolished and are no longer important. They were not teaching that there is no coming kingdom of God on earth. So what gospel were they preaching? That you must be circumcised to earn your salvation. Does that sound like salvation by faith? No, the gospel is salvation by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So verse 7, Galatians 1, 7, which is not another, because there is no other. There is only one gospel. But there's some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to pervert it? To change it, to twist it, to make it something different. How many ways are there? Let's go to John 14, verse 6, and see Messiah's own words. John chapter 14, verse 6. But for context, I want to start in verse 1. Because he's talking about the gospel, even though he doesn't use the word. In verse 1 of John 14, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Do you have an asterisk in your Bible that says, well, it's not really mansions. What is it? It's the bridal chambers from Isaiah chapter 26. And what's Isaiah 26 about? The rapture and a resurrection. How the raptured and resurrected believers as the bride of Messiah are caught up to heaven to the bridal chamber. My father's house are many bridal chambers. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What kind of place? Bridal chamber. And if I go and prepare a place, a bridal chamber for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the only place in the scriptures where Messiah himself talks about the rapture. He doesn't talk about it in Matthew 24. Everyone I've heard that teaches a post-tribulation rapture and uses scripture goes to Matthew 24 as the proof of the timing of the rapture. And Messiah doesn't speak about the rapture in Matthew 24. Why doesn't he? The disciples didn't ask about it. Did they have any idea that there was going to be a called out assembly? Not at that point. So they certainly didn't ask whether the called out assembly was going to be raptured and resurrected to heaven. But verse 4, and where I go you know, and the way you know. The way to what? The way to the bridal chamber. The way to the messianic kingdom. The way to life eternal with our Lord and Savior. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? She was said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Let's go back to John chapter 3. Chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. Through 21. Everyone who's ever seen a pro football game has seen a reference to this section of scripture. John 3, 14 begins... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, how is the serpent lifted up in the wilderness? On the pole. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, which means he was going to be nailed to a tree. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. Because faith in Messiah brings us to love Messiah, which brings us to obey. Because he said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments, John 14, 15. It goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. Do you hear the words of faith there? Keep a finger here because we're coming back and go to John 17, 3. Remember, John writes after the other apostles are gone. And that new called out assembly church, whatever you want to call it, is going off the rails because they're listening to false teachers. In John 17, 3, the words are still read. They're still the words of our Messiah, Yeshua. It says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. And where does John give us, okay, now here's how you know whether you know him or not. First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do you see how those tie together? Verse 3, 1 John 2, 3. Now by this we know that we know him. John 17, 3 says, if you know him, you have eternal life. Now by this we know that we know him if, what's that little word if? Isn't that just a nasty old word? If we keep his commandments. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar. And the truth is not in him. What it's trying to say is that if we have come to God by faith, we want to repent of our sins. We want to turn away from them. We want to walk in righteousness. We want to walk in holiness. And if that's not your heart's desire, then do you truly know him? John says no. Go back to John 3. God bless you. Back to John 3. 
Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See those words, through him? Sounds just like John 14, verse 6, doesn't it? He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So what does that mean? It means people did not want salvation because they didn't want to turn from their sins. Hence the modern gospel of, well, God doesn't want you to repent of your sins. That's stupid. That shows a lack of faith. That you don't believe God will save you despite your walking in sin. But what did God say? If you're practicing lawlessness, that's not faith. Verse 20 says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, what's the truth? That's Torah. How do we know? Psalm 119, verse 142. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. How many of you have heard of the Roman roadway? Many of us have used it for long, long periods of time, <coughs> some of us longer than others, to explain the way of salvation to others. So let's just go over it for a moment. Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. So how many of us need a Savior? Everyone. What if you say, I don't need a Savior, I've never sinned. Scripture says you're a liar. Yeah. So you're a sinner. Go to Romans 3.23. Same chapter, just a few verses later. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's me too. Then Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. And lastly, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10.
that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua, but that's not the way it's actually written, is it, in the Greek? What did we learn? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord is Yeshua, the Lord being the Tetragrammaton is Yeshua. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But what is it that the traditional folks who follow Andy Stanley are missing out of Romans 10? First, that Yeshua is the Tetragrammaton. He is Lord for all eternity and from the beginning. Where did I put it? I looked studying for today at how many times the Tetragrammaton appears in the Old Testament. Any idea how many times? It's about 6,500 and something as I recall. That's a lot of times. But, and also, it says, for the, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. What does our faith, what's it supposed to lead us to? Righteousness. To righteousness. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. And that's in the Roman roadway, but I never heard it explained that way. And it should be. If your heart truly believes, how can you sin against God and not care? The way the Roman roadway is presented is presented to make converts. Is that what the Lord called us to do, to make converts? No was to make students, disciples, Talmudim, teaching them what? All, All things whatsoever I have commanded you. So, you know, unless they have a teacher that will teach them that righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness, they're, ne- they're, not even, they're just going to gloss over that term and just go on about it. Yeah, and that's sad. And I don't want anybody in here to make that mistake. Because we're coming close to the... Timing of the blowing of that that trumpet. I mean, it seems so easy and straightforward, you know, to us who studied the scripture. Yeah. But then, you know, when you point it out to somebody, like you have to teach them the deductive reasoning skills behind all this. Yeah. I can't even remember how I used to think it was something else. I just can't read the Bible anyway differently than I read it. So let's go on back to Galatians and let's read some more. Verse 8. But even if we, what does Paul mean by we? Paul, Barnabas, those traveling with him, even if it's me speaking to you, me up here, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you. What do we see in Revelation 14? The angel was preaching what? The everlasting gospel. It's never been different. It never will be different. So if even an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you, then that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
That word accursed we all know it as anathema. What does it mean, anathema? Let's go back to Acts chapter 23, verse 14. What does Paul believe? What does Paul teach? It's 24.14. I know I still need to get my eyes checked. Acts, I got the book right. Acts 24.14. What is Paul teaching? He says, if anybody's teaching a different gospel, let them be anathema. So we need to look and see what is Paul teaching them. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law, the Torah, and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So Paul believes in the coming kingdom, that there will be a resurrection, some to life, some to eternal death. And those who want to live, what does he teach? The law and the prophets. So if somebody else comes preaching, the way to eternal life is to break God's commandments. Do we look at them kind of cockeyed going, we need to have a chat. But that's all history. That's why every one of the apostles quotes from it, right? That's why you go Yeah. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. Here's where Paul uses that same word, anathema but gives us a better understanding of what he means by accursed. Verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Messiah, from my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So what does he mean by anathema? Separated from Messiah, which means on the way to the lake of fire. Paul wishes he could take the place of some of his brethren who are not heading to heaven but to the lake of fire. He would lay down his life to save them if he could. Why can't he? He's not Messiah. His death would atone for no one. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be separated from Messiah and head to the lake of fire.
Is that a wrong thing for Paul to say? No, because if they don't love the Lord, they've chosen for themselves. What did we read in John 3? Let's go back to John 3 for a moment. Before I go back, yes, ma'am? On 22. O oh, Lord, come, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, generally, when we say it the way you put it, we're quoting John in Revelation 22. So this, this is... This come means... Come and bring in your kingdom. Yep. So he says in verse 22, anyone who doesn't want to go to the kingdom, they don't have to. Let them go their own way. But Lord, please bring that kingdom. Yeah, back to John 3. If you do not have faith in Messiah, you are lost. Anathema. Separated from Messiah. Verse 18, John 3, 18. He who believes in him has faith in Messiah. Love for Messiah is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What is the name of the only begotten Son of God? Yeshua, which is salvation. If you don't believe that Yeshua is salvation, then we need to have a talk later. I believe that says Deuteronomy chapter 13. In Deuteronomy 13, God warns, be careful, don't listen to every spirit or every angel. Not to every prophet. What's that? More people need to teach what it means to believe. More people need to teach what it means to believe in him. You're exactly right. Is it simply to say, I think there may have been a Jesus once upon a time? No. That's the mentality that most people have. Yeah. Just a mental ascent. Because that's what's taught by a lot of denominations. And that's not right. So they don't, they don't look at that word believe as being synonymous with having faith. So they don't look at the word believe as being synonymous with having faith. But it, it does. Where do we first learn that? All the way back with Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God. What does that word believed? It's ha amin. And then it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Right. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If there arises among you a prophet, or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. Paul is equating these false teachers to the false teachers of Deuteronomy 13. When they teach you that to please God, you must break God's commandments. They are no better than these false prophets of Deuteronomy 13. So if you can't turn away from the Lord, then why is there such a strong warning here not to turn away from the Lord? And how many times does the Bible warn us not to be misled by the false prophets. Over and over. And Peter said, you can even misread Paul to the point that he would lead you to what? To the lake of fire. To your own destruction. Yeah, St. Peter says people twist the words of Paul. And I looked up that word twist and it literally means... To torture the words. To put them on the rack. To put them on the rack. So, that's that's a pretty strong language. You are right. That is some very strong language. So, let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. We're up to verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again. It's only been a couple verses. But Paul's going to reiterate it again in case we weren't listening. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, meaning have received from me, let him be accursed. Now we need to know exactly what these others are preaching as the gospel. Go to Acts chapter 15. How are the others teaching that you must enter into the kingdom of God through your own merits. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Because Paul is preaching salvation by faith, the others that are preaching salvation through circumcision have also come from Jerusalem. Now the Galatians don't know who to believe. That's why they've got to come down to the Jerusalem council and the matter's got to be resolved. Salvation is by what? Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. That's the brethren in Galatia. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I was taught growing up, and I know you guys are tired of hearing me say that. But I was taught growing up that the issue of Acts chapter 15 is once somebody gets saved, should they keep the commandments of God or not? Is that the issue? That's not the issue. The issue is how do we get saved? Is it according to the custom of Moses? Why doesn't it say unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses? Because the law of Moses did not require one to get circumcised to be saved. So there's a discussion. Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. 
when there had been much dispute. What does that mean? There are people there arguing, Paul, you're wrong. They've got to be circumcised to be saved. You're wrong, Paul. And Paul's saying, no, you're not listening to me. I talked to the Lord himself. I didn't learn from you. The Lord himself taught me salvation by faith. So verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, referring back to Acts chapter 10, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. So what's Peter's point? Did Peter go in and have them all get circumcised so they could get saved? The answer is no. They were and remained Gentiles in physical body. So how were they saved? By faith. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So Peter's saying, those of you among us teaching that we are saved by circumcision, you're wrong. You need to repent. You need to learn better. Yes? Something just jumped off the page at you where? Right there in verse 11. In verse 11. So Peter says, But we believe that through the grace of God, through the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, that he didn't say that we were saved. He said we shall be saved. Shall be saved in the same manner as they. Yep, all throughout the New Testament you'll see were saved, have been saved, etc. And when you look at the Greek, what do you find? Ongoing. It's ongoing, it's our being saved. Yep. If, 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 he, if it would have just been that one time event of salvation. If it had been just the one time event, then the language is wrong. If he would have said we were saved. He would have said we were saved. That yep. was something that just, uh, read it a thousand times. Yeah, but you're about to give a whole teaching on that topic, aren't you? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> and if your notes didn't contain this verse before, I bet it will now. No, it, does. it does. It does. Yeah. Not to give a sneak peek. I know, I know. So the point is, amongst the early believers, when they got saved, they didn't become biblical geniuses. I know people keep telling me, when we get to heaven, we're all going to get this great download. We'll know everything, and I hope that's true, but I still think we'll have seven years of detention. Singing Aleph, Beit, and Gimel, and Vav, and Zayin, too. But we'll see. We'll see. Yes? I'm glad that you said that, because I read a verse today that jumped off the page of me, going right along the line of what you were saying. Uh-huh. First Timothy 4.13. 1 Timothy 4.13. Let's keep our finger in Acts and go to 1 Timothy 4.13. This was an exhortation to Timothy from Paul. This is an exhortation to Timothy from Paul. And it was the first, it was what he was giving him directions of what you need to do until I come is what he was telling him. He's giving him directions of what, what you need to do until I come. Go ahead and read it and 
Tell me again where? 1 Timothy 4.13. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Yeah, he doesn't want to be ignorant to the word, does it? He wants him to be well studied. Shouldn't the scripture say something like study to show yourself approved? He told, it to Timothy also. <laughs> he told that to Timothy also. How about that? Yeah, in fact, he warns that there are too many people teaching who have not studied. But and that's, that's a concern. That's just something that just really jumped off the page to me because I've heard people you know, say you know, something along that same line. You know, like when they stand up to preach, God will just download it to me. And yeah. I, I don't have to study or anything like that. But Paul is telling the preacher here, yeah. you need to read some. Yeah, absolutely right. So let's go back to Acts chapter 15. The entire council has gotten together. Peter's there. James, John, all those guys are there. James, the half-brother Messiah, is the Nasi, N-A-S-I. He is the leader of the apostles. It's not Peter, it's James. And after Paul rebuking those who were teaching people that salvation is by circumcision, Peter jumps in and says, now wait a minute. You remember how God sent me to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We didn't circumcise anybody. And yet they got saved and we know it because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So they got saved by faith without circumcision. And by the way, Peter says, that's the same way we get saved. Remember Messiah telling folks, don't tell me that you have Abraham as our father. What they meant by saying we have Abraham as our father is we're circumcised like Abraham, therefore we're saved. And that's just bad doctrine. So then James gets up and addresses the now what issue. Salvation is by faith, now what? Verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. What does turning mean? In the process. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood for. What's the word for there mean? Because. Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So if the Gentiles that are turning to God want to know what the commandments are, they put away these four things that, that just characterize pagan worship and come into the synagogue and sit down and listen and learn. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. We're up to verse 10. Uh-oh, my notes are going to take us back to Timothy. <laughs> okay, but first, verse 10. Four, do I now persuade men or God? What does Paul mean by that? Paul's preaching salvation by faith. The others are preaching salvation by works. Is Paul trying to convince God to change his mind to a new way of salvation by faith? 
Answer is no. It's always been by faith. All the way back in Genesis, when Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 believed God and God had accounted it to him for righteousness. Or do I seek to please men? Did Paul preach an ear-tickling gospel? He told Timothy in particular that these false teachers are going to come tickle the ears. Don't be like that. Don't be like them. It says, for if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Messiah. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So a minute ago, I had to have Daniel repeat that he was going to 1 Timothy 4. Making sure we weren't going to the same place. And we weren't. 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5. This is where Paul warns Timothy about the ear ticklers. After telling him at the end of chapter 3. That every scripture that comes out of the mouth of God. Is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He begins in chapter 4 by saying I charge you therefore. What's therefore mean? Because of this. Because every word that came out of the mouth of God is so important. Charge you therefore before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who will judge the living and the dead. That's not a veiled threat. There was no veil at all. At his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Did he mean Greece? No, that's just a bad joke. Be ready in season and out of season. What's that mean in season, out of season? Did Timothy only preach during the summer months? When the opportunity arises, when somebody's got a question, answer it. When somebody wants to know why you believe what you believe, tell them. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and two-befores. No, darn it, he left out two-befores. With all long suffering and teaching. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, right? The Great Commission. Teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Does that mean these false teachers will be teaching a different gospel? Yeah, verse 5. But you be watchful in all things, meaning don't you get caught up in it. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. When he says be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, he says you're going to get persecuted by the false teachers. They're not going to like your doctrine. Don't give in. What was it Dr. Coleman told me at the First Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama, more than 30 years ago? That Baptist doctrine had to be right because the Baptist denomination was growing so fast. 
is that what the scripture says that the broad way leads to eternal life? It's not. Back to Galatians chapter 1. Verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read them together. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. By that he means I did not learn that from any human being on this earth. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. What does that mean? He met the Lord personally, face to face. And where did Paul get his doctrine? The Lord taught him. What an honor that must have been to be schooled by Messiah himself. If you thought Gamaliel was a revered teacher, ah, Messiah is so much higher. So let's go back to Acts chapter 9. See what Paul's talking about. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 30. See, do we have that much time? We do. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 30. Then Shaul, Saul, he doesn't even call himself Paul here. Then Shaul, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Step number one. Why would there be people of the way, meaning believers in Messiah, in the synagogues of Damascus? There were lots of believers in the synagogues, weren't there? Yep, this tells us that right here. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. So what gate did he go out of leaving Jerusalem if he's going on the Damascus road? He's going out the Damascus gate, which is a north gate. And as soon as you go out that gate, that's where Messiah was crucified. It doesn't say how far he's gone, how close he is to the place where Messiah himself was crucified. It says, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Yeshua whom you are persecuting. Can you just hear Paul's heart skip a beat? You're who? I'm Yeshua whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. The goats were the sticks the shepherds used to keep the sheep on the right path. Kicking against the goats was the way the sheep said, I don't want to go the way, the way you want me to go. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Why is he trembling and astonished? He's scared. Why? There's a big light. He hears the voice from heaven. He hears it's Yeshua whom he's been personally persecuting. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him, why are there men with him? 
to arrest the people. Yeah. Stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Why didn't they see a body? Because the voice is coming from heaven. Then Paul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. Not even those who were with him. He's blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. How many days? How many days was Messiah in the tomb? Three. What a coincidence, huh? Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. That's Hanani. That means I'm ready to do whatever you ask of me. Whoops, I got a red number one out here. Let me see. The answer to you, Susie, is yes. Absolutely. Verse 11. The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street, the street called Straight. Isn't that interesting? To go to the straight street. The street named Straight. The straight and narrow way. Now, is that straight just denoting a straight line or straight as in narrow straights? You know, being straight as in, don't turn to the right or to the left. And inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. In the vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. The word saints there, what does that connote? Revelation 14, 12. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Sin has consequences, doesn't it? And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Mm -mm -mm. something like scales indicating in a beautiful picture the blindness that he had before he met Messiah so when he received food he was strengthened and Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus immediately he preached the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the son of God and all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Yeshua is the Messiah. 
And after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Old-fashioned elevator, huh? Okay. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Yeshua. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Yeshua and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. What's funny about verse 29? What are the Hellenists? The Greek-speaking Jews. What do all Christian commentaries say Paul was? A Greek-speaking Jew. Verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Back to Galatians. We're up to verse 13. Do you think those men that were traveling with him to Damascus were those who turned on him to seek to kill him? There's no way to know. It simply doesn't say what happened to them. My guess is Paul preached their ears off. It doesn't tell us. They heard, but did they understand the words? Well, they'd have to be in amazement. Yeah, but it's not unusual for Paul to understand the words the Lord's speaking and those with him not to understand the words. Just think there's thunder or something. Just not understand. Okay, back to Galatians. We're up to verse 13. that click let me try again verse 13 for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it yeah we just read about that in Acts chapter 9 so we don't need to turn back there again but Paul was very very zealous and do you remember Let's go back to Acts chapter 8, in fact. Acts chapter 8. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. You guys all know that, right? Realize it. And when the Sanhedrin had, had Stephen stoned, Paul was their representative at, Saul's, at Stephen's stoning. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, his being Stephen. Paul was at the site. Whenever the Sanhedrin called for a stoning, they sent a representative at the site in case they decided to change the vote and not put the person to death. They would have the representative at the execution site stop the stoning. Paul didn't stop the stoning. So it's, that's why it says he was consenting to Stephen's death. 
At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Who was carrying out that persecution? That was Paul. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Paul meant his persecution for evil, but God used it to disperse the gospel message throughout the world. It wasn't that Paul was doing a good thing, it's that God was able to make something good happen out of the evil that Saul was doing. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. Brother yes, ma'am. Where does it say that Paul went to Mount Sinai and studied there? Um, I, can't, I don't know if it's in the, our text or not, or if it's... I think you're talking about Galatians 1.17. Okay. Nor, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, those were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia, and that was to Mount okay. Sinai. Okay. Thank you. Yep, okay. But we're up to verse 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous... For what? For the traditions of my fathers. Not zealous for the Torah. Not zealous for God. But zealous for the pharisaical man-made rules. Do you think maybe he heard Messiah's message in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15? about how these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. So Paul says that's where his zealousy was, for the man-made rules and regulations of the scribes and Pharisees. And what was he? He was a Pharisee. And he says he was being more exceedingly zealous than the other Pharisees. He was the one who really, really wanted you to die if you were not willing to follow pharisaical rules and bow down and give them your loyalty. Does it sound like the Inquisition? That for a thousand years? What would happen during the Inquisition if they caught you secretly keeping the Sabbath? They would put you to death. Put you on the rack, burn you at the stake, draw and core you, maybe do all three. What happens to those who don't learn from history? They're doomed to repeat it. So verse 14, let's go to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. I'm sure immediately when I said Mark 7 a minute ago, your brain flashed there anyway. Mark 7, 1 to 9. You know, when we get to heaven and see the videotapes, is it possible that one of the Pharisees that was present here 
when Messiah embarrassed himself with Saul? It is entirely possible, isn't it? Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. It doesn't name the Pharisees. Now when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, uh-oh, that word is common, koinon. The same as in, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. So they're eating bread with their hands not washed in accordance with the man-made doctrines. It says that is with unwashed hands they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. So what have the Pharisees been teaching the people? The Torah? No, the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they've received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? This is what Paul says he was so zealous in. But eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. That's exactly what Paul was doing before he met the Lord. Let's go to Acts chapter 28. Yeah, there had to be something that inflamed Paul so badly that he wanted to just kill and destroy every believer he could. Do you think he was there? It certainly is possible. He was offended, yeah. Acts 28, verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when he had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. It's, it means that he was still keeping the man-made rules, but not teaching them as the way of salvation or as the way of life. Not every one of the man-made traditions is bad, but when you set aside God's commandments to replace them with man-made tradition, you've gone off the rails. And he was trying to keep his witness to the Jewish people alive, absolutely. So did he go around teaching people to violate every custom of the Jewish people? No. But he taught them to keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Which takes precedence if there's a conflict. The commandments of God. What does the Catholic Church say today? If our traditions differ from the Bible, which takes precedence? Our traditions. It's simply the Pharisees reimagined. So that's what his discussions in Romans 14 is about. Right, the doubtful things. They don't conflict with the commandments of God. So, uh. well, they, 
and mess with your mind, make you doubt. Yeah. But if I want to wash my hands with a two-handled cup, does that offend God? No. If I teach you you're not saved unless you wash your hands with a two-handled cup, does that offend God? Yes. So Paul was very careful not to offend unless offense was necessary. And if offense was necessary, he didn't hold back any punches. And that means also he wouldn't have been going around eating a ham sandwich. Also means he would not have been going around eating a ham sandwich at all. Why do people think Mark 7 is about eating a ham sandwich? Because of a very poor translation in the Old English where meat referred to grain and not to animal flesh. And then the NIV which says he declared all foods clean. Would he have considered a pig food? Absolutely not. Right. Back to Galatians. You know, I thought we were going to finish at least chapter 2 last week, but I think I was wrong. Zealous, but without knowledge. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So he didn't go down to Jerusalem and say, hey, Peter, Peter, teach me. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia, as Rachel was asking. That's referring to Mount Sinai. He goes back to where Moses spoke to God in the wilderness. And returned again to Damascus. Ben Witherington identifies Arabia with Petra and the kingdom of the Nabataeans. I like that. Mount Sinai is very close to Petra. But not only is Mount Sinai where Moses brought the commandments of God down to the people after the people heard the ten with their own ears. But Petra is also the place where God will protect the children of Israel who flee from the false Messiah in the middle of the tribulation period. So it, it was very touching to me when I read that commentary. Ben wasn't there, neither was I, but I just thought it was really cool. Verse 18. Then after three years, what's Paul been doing for three years? Learning the scripture from? From Messiah himself. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Is that referring to Acts chapter 15? No, it's referring to Acts chapter 9. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. To verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, this is when he comes to see Peter. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. That's that visit in Acts, 
I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, is Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Oh, and you know what? It's the 8 o'clock hour. I've run out of time. I have a red circle out here. Let me check it before I close. Okay, that's interesting, Margot. Okay, so let us close in prayer. Remembering that we're how long till the Feast of Trumpets? Two weeks and a couple days. If anyone out there is not ready to meet the Lord, this is the time to get ready. Let's pray.